I'd like you to turn to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Book of Judges. Judges comes between the, uh, we might say, the law, the patriarchs, Moses, and then coming into the land after Joshua died, this period of these judges, because the people constantly turned from the Lord and God raised these men up. It's between then Moses, the law, the conquest of the land, and when the kingship came, uh, Saul and then David. This period of Judges, it shows that the people needed a deliverer. But none of these men were able to bring full Deliverance. There was always a going back to sin. Another one had to be raised up. But one of the features of the book of Judges is just look at who God raised up. They weren't mostly the sorts of men that you would imagine, or uh, women for that matter. Uh, you wouldn't expect a Deborah. Uh, Although I'm left-handed, who would expect Ehud, the left-handed man? Samson? Hardly a paragon of virtue. And yet the Lord began to deliver his people from the Philistines through him. There was Jephthah, whose birth was hardly a noble one. It's possible that at the end of chapter 3, the, the one there called Shamgar, the son of Anna, it's even possible he was a Canaanite himself. So this is what the book's about. It's about every man doing what's right in his own eyes, so constantly turning aside from the Lord because there was no king in Israel. And then finally God brings it to an end, he establishes the kingship, but even the kings are not totally faithful, are they? Even the greatest of them all, David, leaves something to be desired, and they all point forward, of course, to the great king, our Lord Jesus Christ. But in Judges, just look at the people whom God uses. We're going to look at chapter 7, particularly. We're going to start reading in chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. <clears throat> for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. <clears throat> Sadly, we know all about Gaza today, don't we? 
and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And then God raises up Gideon. And Gideon says, verse 15, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. In other words, God, why don't you choose somebody else? I'm not the, the man to do this job. And then you know the story. I expect how Gideon wanted real assurance, so he put out the fleece. I'm sure you know the story at the end of chapter 6. But we want to go into chapter 7 because now we read the account of Gideon delivering the people from the Midianites. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill Morah in the valley. <clears throat> the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths with 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamt a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, 
This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all, all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. You know what's missing, don't you? And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shitter towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mehola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. We'll finish it there. Well, it is a most amazing account. I hope you agree. But it goes against all common sense. Surely what was needed in the face of such a numerous enemy was a larger and better equipped army to make sure you could match the enemy. Well, that's the way of the world. But it's not the way of God. We must reckon, brethren, that God's ways are not our ways. And God works for his glory and against us taking the glory for ourselves. Indeed, that's what it says, doesn't it, in chapter 7 and verse 2. You're too many, because if you get the victory with this group, you'll say, we did it ourselves. Indeed, in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 17, as they view the future conquest of the land, this is what the people are warned, Deuteronomy 8.17. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. What a danger that was and is. <clears throat> Consider Israel at the, the Red Sea. God boxed them in, didn't he, with the sea in front of them, the mountains on either side, and the Egyptians in hot pursuit behind. 
consider the defeat of Jericho. All they did was to march around it those, uh, on those seven days and then on the seventh day uh, to blow the trumpets. That was God's method. So there are great lessons to learn from this particular passage, but I've already shown you it's the message in so many passages. Could have chosen uh, many to say this. <clears throat> you see, when there's a challenge for Maiden Vow Baptist Church, what do we first think of? Well, I, I can't be sure that you do, but it's quite possible some of you, all of you think of, oh, we've got this opportunity. It could be Moldova, I suppose. But look, look how few we are. How can we possibly do anything like this? And our financial budget is already uh, eaten up with this and that opportunity. There's no possibility we can do that. And anyway, we only have one pastor here. Uh, how can we possibly engage? That tends to be our response, doesn't it? We can't do it. So let me tell you then these three things from this passage. First of all, the Lord uses the weak. The Lord uses the weak. The enemy is described as being like locusts in abundance. You've probably not experienced locusts. I have a little bit. But you've seen pictures, haven't you? Where all you can see are locusts hiding the vegetation as they destroy it. Uh, chapter 8 tells us there were 135,000 Midianites. 135,000. And we're told, aren't we, that their camels were without number as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. Now, we didn't read it, but the Spirit of the Lord had already come upon Gideon. Gideon had been chosen by God to deliver the people. And he set about uh, raising the army of Israelites. And he managed to raise, as we read, 32,000 of them. God says, that's too many. 135,000? 32,000. But God says, too many. I can't allow you to get the victory with that many. Otherwise, you will praise yourself. So then, God does two things. He allows the fearful to return home. That again, in God's wisdom, was allowed for by the law. You can see it in, again in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 8. Talking about going into battle. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go back to his house, lest he make the hearts of his fellows melt like his own. <clears throat> so that's something according to the law. Of course, if there were fearful people, they would be likely to run away and uh, cause a problem to everybody else. 
About two-thirds of them went away, didn't they? Uh, 22,000. And now there are 10,000 left. But they're still too many. And God is going to whittle them down to that very small number of 300. And he's going to do it by the way they drink water from the, the stream. <clears throat> now, you know the story. It's often remarked something like this. The 9,700 who knelt to drink water showed that they were unprepared for the battle. But those who put their hands, hand to the mouth with one hand still free showed that they were prepared to be surprised even when they were drinking water. I simply want to tell you that's not true. <laughs> the idea that the 300 would be like the crack troops, the, the commandos, because they were really the ones who could fight. Uh, would defeat the whole purpose of what God is doing here. This was simply God's way of cutting down numbers so that the larger group would be excluded and the smaller group would be the ones to get uh, the victory. Because if there was something special in the 300, then there is something to boast about, isn't it? See, we were chosen because uh, we're the commandos. Actually, they didn't do anything militarily. What was missing? There were no swords, were there? <laughs> what a crazy way to fight a, a big army without any swords at all. So now the scene is set. There are 300 against 135,000. For you mathematicians, that's a ratio of 1 to 450. Uh, impossible odds, really, in battle, isn't it? But again, God had promised that a hundred Israelites would put to flight 10,000 of the enemy because he would be on their side. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 26, where the fruits of obeying the Lord, following the covenant were listed, Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus, Leviticus 26, verse 8. <clears throat> Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. That was the promise. Again, in Joshua chapter 23, as Joshua looks forward to the full conquest of the land, Joshua chapter 23, verse 10, one man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. So this is not something new. This is something that's already in the word of God. <clears throat> Jesus came. He's come to save his people from throughout the world. How's he going to do it? How is the Roman Empire going to be evangelized? Well, he takes 12 men, doesn't he? And none of them are the great of this world. Uh, don't think fishermen are to be despised. 
but a number of them were fishermen. Their skills were then on the sea. There, were, there was a tax collector, wasn't there? And so on. That's how the Lord did it. And it's written in the book of Acts, it's through those men that God turned the world upside down. A church was to be established in Corinth. What a notorious city Corinth was. To Corinthianize was a way of talking of rampant immorality. How did the Lord do it? Well, he sent a man we know as Paul, but he wasn't anybody, was he? I mean, to a Corinthian, Paul, a Jew? Why should I listen to him? But he goes, he holds up, as he tells us, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what happens? A church is formed. People are converted. So let's remember, I've given those examples because we've been given the task of conquering the world. We have. And we look at ourselves and say, it can't be done, but it can. Because God uses the weak. But God also, secondly, he encourages the weak because maybe you're feeling it right now. Uh, still saying uh, it, it can't be done. So God comes to Gideon who very much felt his uh, unworthiness and how God has chosen the wrong man and gives him great encouragement. He gives repeated statements to uh, Gideon that he will give Midian into their hands. Look at verse 7 of chapter 7. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. I'll do it. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. What clearer statement could you wish for from the Lord but the Lord he knows us doesn't he he knows Gideon he knows that his faith our faith is weak we are like that man who cried I believe help my unbelief he knows that we're tempted to fear when the opposition the enemy is so great there's no upbraiding. There's no accusation of Gideon here. There's just encouragement after encouragement. You consider now that section, verses 9 down to 14. The amazing providences that God brought that made Gideon worship God, as it's written there in verse 15. Well, first of all, God gives a dream to who? To the enemy. It's a Midianite who has a dream, not an Israelite. 
Now, mark you, there are 135,000 people, okay? It's not, it's not a tiny encampment. I wonder what the size of Crawley is. Okay, so it's the size of Crawley then. Um, isn't it amazing that it's to that particular tent that Gideon goes, not knowing, of course, uh, that a Midianite's having a relevant dream. But what's even more providential, he arrives at the tent at exactly the time that the man awakes from his dream and is telling the dream to his companion. And Gideon can hear it. And then God protects Gideon. He's sort of in the camp, isn't he? If he can hear. And yet Gideon's presence is undiscovered. So what did Gideon hear? He heard that a cake of barley bread would flatten a Midianite tent. Well, barley bread, of course, speaks of an agricultural people. That was the Israelites. We've been introduced, haven't we, to, to Gideon and his agriculture and the harvest being stolen by the Israelites every harvest season. A tent speaks of a pastoral people, a people on the move with their animals. And that's the interpretation, isn't it? Isn't it? That's what's given here. That it means, and even the man himself is spoken of, Joash or Gideon. Gideon is going to defeat Midian. Gideon represented by the barley cake. Midian represented by the tent. Victory is coming against us, and that's from the mouth of Midianites. You can't ask for more assurance than that, can you? Now, we are called upon to exercise faith, but our God is exactly like this. He knows our weakness, our tendency to unbelief, and he brings encouragements. Maybe something you read. A biography. A commentary. Just the Bible itself. Maybe something someone says to us. We may hear a situation analogous to my situation which will encourage me. You might even receive words of encouragement in this very sermon. Although you didn't know what was being preached most of you this evening. But that's what God does, isn't it? He comes upon us when we're not expecting because he knows what we need. In Corinth, Paul was tempted to be afraid. Yes, the great man who couldn't be afraid? Oh, no. He was afraid, and God said to him, Paul, don't fear. Nobody shall attack you to harm you. 
you keep speaking. God knew the encouragement his servant needed. In Macedonia, while Paul was waiting for news about Timothy, we read in 2 Corinthians that there was fighting without and fear within. Yes, in Paul, fear within. And then Titus came with the good news. Oh, and then Paul's the heart was set at rest because he was hearing news about the Corinthians. How had they received his letter? What would their attitude be towards him? Esther wanted to go and uh, say to the king about the situation with the Jews, but she knew she couldn't go unless the golden scepter was held out, otherwise she might be killed. But she went, and it was held out. Again, the encouragement she had to go and speak on behalf of her people. We serve a wonderful Lord, don't we? He sympathises with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. So then, our feeling of weakness, our inability is not a hindrance to the Lord accomplishing his work through us if it makes us look to the Lord. Paul found out that God's grace is sufficient because God's power is made perfect in weakness. Actually, the feeling of weakness is a necessary qualification, isn't it? If we go forth in our own strength, thinking we can do it. If you look at the, the budget of the church and say, we can do it, and that's all you're thinking of. We got the man. And there's no feeling that even with those things, we still can't do it. Then it's likely to fail. But I'm seeking to encourage you very much this evening. And then the third thing is this. There is victory in weakness. Well, the 300 didn't have much to do, did they? All they had to do was to gather quietly in the darkness in three groups uh, in different places around the camp and then suddenly display the lights they had hidden, blow the trumpets and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. That's all they had to do. Just stand there. That would make the army of the enemy feel that another large enemy had surrounded them. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? As they stood there blowing the trumpets, surprising the enemy in the middle watch of the night, <clears throat> the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade 
verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his company and against all the army. They started fighting themselves. Israel had nothing to do. Do you remember there was another time that happened? In the time of Jehoshaphat, in Second Chronicles chapter 20. If you've never read that chapter, what a, what a chapter beginning with Jehoshaphat's feeling of utter weakness. Lord, these people have come to destroy us. What can we do against such a large army? The very same situation. But the Lord fought for them. Because in verses 22 and 23, it says this, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. And in the morning, the Israelites just found they destroyed each other. Gideon could easily have said, Lord, you're sending us to destruction. How can 300 men with torches and trumpets and without swords defeat the enemy? We are, we are meat. We're finished. <clears throat> but that's to fail to reckon what the Lord is able to do in the midst of the enemy. The spiritual forces against which we fight are far more mighty than we are. The people we speak to, they're blinded by the God of this world. They're held in spiritual bondage by sin. You remember what Jesus said, that uh, here is a man... uh, Chained. He's guarded. Unless a more powerful person than the guard comes, which is Jesus Christ, then the man who is bound cannot be released. And there's so much against the church today, isn't there? There's the attractions of the world. There's... Um, supposedly made available to anybody who wants them. There's evolution and all its tentacles as that godless theory uh, enters all of life. There's the fact that when we want to reach people, people aren't here. They don't want to come. And if you knock on their doors, many of them may be polite, but they don't want to hear what you have to say. So the battle is a tough one, isn't it? But what has the Lord command us, commanded us to do? What well, has commanded us to take the gospel to them? In one sense, it's that simple. That is what you read in the book of Acts. It's what Jesus himself did. 
we are to go and make disciples by preaching, by teaching of all nations. The problem we're in today, or one of the problems is, many in the church think that by preaching we are then doomed to failure. They might even say it's because you churches, you keep on boring people with 40, 45 minute sermons when they want to feel happy, you know how it goes. That's why uh, you're not doing well. And if you look at the outside, you can think that's true, can't you? There are churches in Crawley today filled with people where they are receiving what we would call entertainment. I hope it's more than that. And here we are not seeking to entertain you, but to explain to you and to apply to you uh, the word of God. So this is what people do. They say, unless you produce miracles in front of people, how will people believe? <clears throat> unless you have uh, lively singing, films, uh, development agendas, thinking perhaps of the third world there. Bring to your pulpit, you know, people who are well-known names who are religious. Uh, some new person who's been converted out of the sports world or something. And then people will listen. We must never forget what the Lord is able to do. He is the one who's able to open the heart of a sinner. He's opened your heart and mine. Amen. And what he's done for you, he can do for others. I may have said it before, but back there in Nairobi, there was a Mohammed, of course, a, a Muslim. And 25 years ago, the Lord saved him. And he kept on saying... If the Lord can save Muhammad, he can save anybody. Because the Lord is able to open such a heart. <clears throat> and the Lord delights to do it through the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Paul in 1 Corinthians says to people, my preaching is foolish. And yet... It was through that preaching of Christ and him crucified that the church in Corinth was built. So there are no apologies from me or this church more generally that we tell you it is the message of Jesus Christ who came and died upon a Roman cross. Although he was without sin, he died for sinners like you and like me. We have no shame. We rejoice that we can tell you. When you believe that message, that is the way you become a Christian. That is the way the church is built. And that's the message, of course, which will keep us in the faith. That's why Paul gloried in the cross. Paul the Apostle said... God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Christ by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. We are saying to you, 
again and again and again. We're not going to add to it. We're not going to change tack. Jesus Christ and him crucified is your only hope. Amen. But still we come back, don't we? So are you still saying? Yeah, I know all that, but honestly, our church is small, isn't it? And we don't have enough leaders, which is true, humanly speaking. We, we have, yeah, we've got financial resources, but they are so little for such a big work. <clears throat> Maybe you say, well, anyway, I don't know how to speak. I'm, I'm the fearful type, I'm the retiring type, not like so-and-so who's as bold as a lion. And anyway, even if I spoke, people won't listen. Uh, they think preaching's irrelevant. Ever heard those things before? Ever listened to yourself and heard those excuses? They're probably true, aren't they? But those are the people, you and me, whom the Lord delights to use. Back in the 18th century, you may have heard of the Cambuslang revival in Scotland. <clears throat> I read of a certain minister called McCulloch, who was a minister in Cambuslang. He was known as the ale, that's as in beer, the ale minister, because when he started preaching, people turned off because it's pretty boring, apparently and they went to their ale pots uh, as a far more entertaining way to spend their time than to listen to his preaching. But you know what happened in Kamloosang, don't you? In his church. There was a revival. See, that's what God is able to do. We may say, that's where there's going to be revival. Some strong person. Pray that it will be so. But God so often, so often chooses the weak. And I think we need to be careful that we don't start glorying in men. The best preacher can't do anything unless the Lord works to him. And if we trust in a preacher, if the preacher trusts in himself, then it's very likely the Lord won't work. So what we need, what... Maiden Bar Baptist Church needs is total confidence in the Lord. Amen. If he has spoken, that's it, brethren. Pray to do what he said. And if he said it, he will direct you, he will provide for you. And uh, I know your pastor's excited about Moldova. I hope you are. Uh, it's not something that you thought, is it? No. These are providences that God brings. If I may be as bold to say, pursue it. See how uh, others who are uh, learning what we've known for years, see how you can help others to grow so that the gospel of the grace of God in Christ can be spread in that very, very needy country. 
the Lord delights to use such weak churches and weak vessels as we are. Praise be his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've not chosen us because we are good, because we aren't, or powerful, because we aren't. We know, Lord, that by ourselves we can't do anything. But we thank you that you promised to use people like Gideon. We pray that you might be pleased to use us, Lord. Help us not to be unbelieving and simply to moan that I can't speak or I can't, I can't go, um, I can't do this thing. Please help us as your people to be those who serve you in reliance upon you. Please use this word, Lord, for the spread of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name.